the insight here was that in looking at the climate crisis and the climate emergency, I needed to respond to it, that the scarcest resource in this whole conversation was not uh, silicone wafers or lithium or technology or money, it was time. Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each episode features a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Join us as we delve into the complexities of this global challenge and seek actionable ways to build a sustainable future. Hello, everyone. We are here with Doug Farr today. Doug is a nationally recognized architect, urbanist, and author. He leads Chicago-based Farr Associates, a pioneering sustainability-driven architecture and urban design firm that plans and designs lovable and aspirational buildings and places. He is also a leader of the sustainability movement, which is a major reason we uh, asked him to consider speaking with us. He co-chair, he's co-chairing the development of the U.S. Green Building Council's Lead for Neighborhood Development, or LEAD-ND, and the author of the urban planning bestseller, Sustainable Urbanism, Urban Design with Nature, and Sustainable Nation, Urban Design Patterns for the Future. Doug, thank you for being in our little show here. Delighted to be here. Thank you. And we're going to kick it off, as we always do, with a little biographical question. Could you... Could you give us the highlights and lowlights of your life and career? How did you get interested in architecture and was sustainability always a part of that? Sure. Thanks for asking. So I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, which doesn't seem like the hotbed of sustainability, but um, (laughs) the time I grew up there, it was the hotbed for all kinds of things that uh, drive my practice today. So um, in the 1970s, uh, I know many of your listeners uh, weren't alive then, but I was, and um, it was the first time that the world sent a message about the importance of energy. So this is in 1973-74 when uh, the price of oil overnight went up time 4x, and uh, Americans made, you know, gas-guzzling cars and were immediately, um, you know, subsumed by principally the Japanese who figured out a better, lighter, more energy-efficient car. And so I watched that happen to my hometown industry. And uh, I was the nerdy kid who was turning off the lights and scolding my parents about sweaters and you know, all the kind of simple, superficial behavioral things that you think you, you, know, you have agency over, which you do. But anyway, so fast forward to University of Michigan, 11 undergraduate majors, hard sciences, soft sciences, and then in the end, landing in architecture because I like to design and I like to draw. And so here we are. Fascinating. And, well, well, uh, so, well, well, I don't, I don't know well, if it's fascinating. Need, You're very gracious. Well, we need we need a, a few bullet points on the intervening decades. Oh, yeah. Oh, it didn't end there? Okay. Surely. So um, really launched my architectural career with a focus in sustain, sustainability. It wasn't called that then. In the 70s, it was called passive solar design. In the 80s and 90s, it was called environmental design. The word yep. sustainability kicked in just before the turn of the century. Um, since then, it's had you know many labels and flavors: smart, resilient, uh, you know, robust. All these kinds of healthy. Uh, all of these uh, design labels apply to the work we do, both in building design and place placemaking. So, um, and then started Far Associates in 1990, 33 years ago, and 
since then have been, I believe, the sustainability leader in Chicago Architects. New York Times said so, so I'll just quote them. So it must be, it must be true. Well, the paper of record said so, so I'm just it's hanging my hat on that. And uh, But no, we. Uh, the more important thing is a sustained attempt to continue to pioneer at every stage and never settle for good enough. And so um, the things that we thought were great and were pioneering and were, you know, demonstration projects in the 90s, you know, are nothing today. Just we did our best then, but we now know how to do so many more miraculous things. And so our practice on the architecture side focuses on all electric high performance buildings. We often embrace the FIAS uh, standard, Passivize US standard, which is a high conservation standard, voluntary uh, for buildings. But uh, we now we know how to design predictably buildings that use half, sometimes two thirds less energy than a code compliant building. So, um, and that wow. was guesswork not so long ago, and now it's reliable. And, and the more important part of the equal in importance to the energy performance that we're able to get is we have uh, a fairly narrow range of predictable cost premium. So for example, a recent multifamily project we did that uses half the energy of a code compliant building, we believe that we built for a 7% cost premium. So so everyone would like it to be 0% cost premium, like I've got something twice as good and it didn't cost me anymore. That along with unicorns, leprechauns and and other things are, are things to dream about, but but in the practical world, we're just offering a higher value, higher performance project at some premium, and it's left to the to the client to say, is is it worth seven percent to reduce my energy by fifty percent and my fossil fuel consumption by a hundred? So so that's kind of where we're at, and uh, lots of stories to tell about that. Well, I'm going to ask one more sort of not so much biographical, but but about. Far Associates, which is, is your client base national, international, primarily Chicago area? Do you limit yourself geographically in that sense? Just a commentary on that, because I suspect some of our listeners will listen to this, go to the website and want to know where you operate. Sure. We, most of our building projects are Chicago, Illinois, and Midwest. Our planning projects um, go to Texas and California, Florida. So we're national, more on the planning side. Um, I'll just say there's method to this the limitation, which is we think it's important that architects know how to design optimally for their climate. And so right. for me to pretend to be an expert in Texas or in Alaska would just not be true. So we would be out of our element. And, and I do think there's a regionalism to the best high-performing buildings is we really know how to make a building sing for a you know a Chicago climate, which is a place where buildings should put on a winter coat and yeah. also you know take it off in the summer and be a fun kind of breezy, airy, uh, comfortable place to be. So you have to that expertise to do that is hard earned and takes many years. And so you know we yeah. optimize around climate zone you know four or five and six. That was a super useful and insightful answer. I'm going to move us into the meat meat of our discussion. I have a question on applications, and then we'll mostly talk about the book. You're an active movement builder, to put it that way. You know, you helped create the U.S. Green Building Council's lead for neighborhood development, and you had the Carbon Free Chicago Project, mm-hmm. uh, which is a 30-year campaign for the equitable transition away from fossil fuels. 
Mm-hmm. How do these different roles work alongside each other and alongside your business? You know, explain to us how they all fit. Sure. So I will say there's a, a kind of a synergy between my desire to establish and run a business to demonstrate the cutting edge of sustainability, to pioneer techniques and assemblies and entire buildings that prove what just a year or two ago seemed impossible or non-attainable or impossibly expensive. So we've run the business to be that sort of cutting edge firm. Mm-hmm. To gain clients, uh, what I've learned over the years is that my opinion about what that is and whether it's a good idea to do is just one person's opinion. So I found it more useful that there be a forward-looking third party that can validate that what I'm suggesting our clients do it has been validated by a third party. And so don't basically don't take my word for it that what I'm proposing to do for you is the right thing listen to the U.S. Green Building Council or listen to this group called Carbon Free Chicago um, who are thoughtful, the right people with the right thinking who have blessed it and believe too that it is the right thing. Um, And then, you know, in the case of Bleed ND, um, we were way out ahead of the curve in terms of proposing that the insights of the green building movement, people may associate with the term lead, you know, lead in the U.S. Green Building Council, could apply just as well to larger scale master plan places. In fact, there are some things that you can only do with scale of a master plan place, but USGBC and LEED didn't know that or didn't get that right at the time. So, so we pioneered that. And so we, famously, we turned in a project in advance of LEED ND to a master planning client, the local our, our regional transit authority here, and it had green building elements in it. So it had uh, an illustration with buildings that had green roofs and the streets were designed to store stormwater and there were solar panels and so on. We turned it in and just, you know, no extra charge. For my mind, we're giving you the future for free. And they said, you know, what is all this stuff? We didn't ask for this. And who thinks it's a good idea? And please take it away. It's like, oh, my gosh, boy, do we have a problem here? So that was that was honestly the spark that that launched the, the journey of a thousand miles to st- create lead neighborhood development to say all of those things that we showed you in that rendering that you couldn't make sense of are now prescribed in a standard called lead neighborhood development. It's national. It's actually global. So it's a good idea. Don't take my word for it. So, so those things work together, the business, what the business needs and what the business needs to create markets. Got it. That, That was a super helpful and eloquent explanation. I'm going to move to books. And we'll, we'll do Sustainable Nation, which was published in 2018 as a follow-up to Sustainable Urbanism. It's a really interesting book. It, you know, it draws on all these fields, which kind of plays to my, my general view of the world, which is you know, neuroscience, sociology, history, environmental science. It is visual. It has contributions from many people. For listeners who may not be familiar with the book, could you give us a bit of an overview and what led you to write it? Sure. So um, my publisher, John Wiley and Sons, had asked for an update on my earlier book, Sustainable Urbanism, published in 2008, when I sat down to write this book about 2014 and 2015, even in the short span of seven years, the, the industry, the world pertaining to sustainability and climate had moved so far that the thought of reheating something that was cutting edge written in 2006 and 2007 just seemed untenable. So um, much to the surprise of John Wiley and Sons, the book I turned in was not 
Sustainable Urbanism 2, it was Sustainable Nation, a, a book that had a very different ambition. And so um, it started out, um, there's a famous book in design circles called Pattern Language by a now deceased professor from Oregon named Christopher Alexander. And this book was uh, just a kind of a Bible for so many of us that documented uh, traditional patterns of design at different scales, at the scale of city planning, buildings, sometimes down to the level of a window or a chair, all this kind of stuff. And it was just kind of a, you could sleep with it under your pillow and it had application for kind of so many aspects of life. So, so we wanted to do a future version of that. So that's what the pattern, the subtitle of sustainable nation was urban design patterns for the future. So his was mining history and that's all well and good and they're still timeless, but we wanted to reach into the future and say, what are the things that we should be anticipating? And so, so 71 patterns by, uh, as you mentioned, rightly, a diverse set of co-authors and co-collaborators on the 71 patterns. Um, so that was that was the core of the book. And then a second part came along uh, when we really sat down to do, we were trying to generate a pattern on time. And the insight here was that in looking at the climate crisis and the climate emergency, I needed to respond to it, that the scarcest resource in this whole conversation was not uh, silicone wafers or lithium or technology or money, it was time. And so asking the question, what is the fastest way to change? And so that became a kind of late in the game obsession that got recorded in Sustainable Nation. And so famously, the kind of the story on that one is we were looking for trends, long-term trends, um, particularly in the United States, where we could show that some action that society was taking reversed itself and how to ask the question, how long did that take? And so we were looking for analogs to we now burn fossil fuels in the future. We hope not to. How long does a reversal like that take? Right. So we want that's the question we were asking. So the best uh, sort of uh, study that we found was cigarette smoking cessation. It was a great study, not because of the harm of cigarette smoking, but because it was so well documented and we had great data. And what we figured out was if the United States reversed, if the United States decarbonized, that is stopped burning fossil fuels at the same rate, following the same, you know, reversal curve as cigarette smoking cessation, we would decarbonize fully by the year 2150, which is 125 years from now and far slower than any of us can tolerate. And so, so that was a shocker. Oh my goodness. I hope not to find this, but we just found this. And so um, other parts of the book evolved to focus then on accelerants, which is what are those things that we can, uh, techniques, strategies, campaigns, and so on, we can apply to speed things up. And so, um, so sustainable nation is those three things. It is the patterns. It is the recognition of the scarcity of time and timelines, and then it's accelerants. That was amazing. And, you know, there's so much <laughs> in what you just said that resonates with how, how we think. And believe it or not, I have written a very mediocre book on behavior change for the climate. And the example I have used in it is that of smoking cessation. So that just tells you something. Let's talk theory of change, because the one thing you did not mention and does show up in the book, if I'm reading it right, is the importance yeah. of community what led you to think about the community in such a substantive way? And if, if this is the case, by the way, I believe it, how do our strategies change? One uh, observation I will make 
um, as it pertains to much of the busyness and sometimes activity around promoting climate action, you know, taking action to mitigate, you know, harm, right? So my overall observation, it is more often than not someone suggesting that someone else needs to change or someone else needs to go first. So, oh, well, the climate, it's a really big problem. You know what? Government needs to do something, you know, or... Uh, yeah, that's that's right. We really need to act. But, you know, I'm not going to do anything until China is perfect. And so I'm going to I'm going to sit this out so that we've got these kind of a whole world of actors and we're empowering them individually to to give us a pretext to not act. And so it's always like, well, if you go first or, I'll, you know, I'll, I'm kind of sitting this out, but I have a good I talk a good game to put it on someone else. And so so that's one observation. And then the second observation is, I believe that there is a, in, again, in climate, there's so many like cerebral, even business <laughs> cases like, oh, you know, we should all invest in renewables because we know that for a new kilowatt of production, it's the lowest cost, you know, cheaper than nuclear and blah, blah, blah. We should do it for the business case and we should do it because it's the right policy, all these kinds of things. And what we overlook is that we are all causing it. And so government has very severe limits on how much it can actually intervene in your life to cause you to change your conduct. It can tax you. It can make, you know, something more, more expensive or less expensive. Actually, we don't tax people. We subsidize because the politics of taxation just don't work. So, but when, when you compare again, cigarette smoking to fossil fuels, what you find is all of these same measures of like the government will tax you, the government will ban, you know, bars won't serve you if you smoke in them. All these kinds of things were attempts to get around the fact that what it comes down to is an individual quits smoking. Society doesn't quit smoking for them. Government doesn't quit smoking. The bar didn't quit smoking. They quit smoking. And so the other thing is when you look at the behavioral uh, details around, uh, you know, cigarette smoking cessation, if your family smokes, you smoke. If your family right. doesn't smoke, you don't smoke. If your friends quit, you quit. And so right. it's a social network. Um, uh, contagion is the wrong word, but kind of just uh, we, are, we, we are social beings. And to think that climate and carbon aren't also subject to those same kind of Very prompts much. and nudges is silly. Of course it is. And so, you know, maybe since the materials we sent you for this uh for this podcast because we've been trying for so long to schedule it in that intervening time we stood up something called the climate action museum here in chicago it opened on june 21st and so this is you know the next in a series of uh activist things that we've been involved in and I love um, it. yeah and so that exists and it is uh the premise of that is uh number several things one is when you come in the door it's a physical space 300 south riverside plaza in chicago anybody's traveling hit me up we'll go over there it's we think it's the world's eighth museum devoted to climate um and it says nothing about climate disasters nothing about fires polar bears floating on icebergs uh, any of that stuff so zero zero triggers for people shifting from a conversation that i would like to be about what action can you take to make this better to, you know how bad it's going to be? Do you hear, do you hear the latest story about how bad it's going to be, which I think arrests action. So we don't trigger anything. Number two, 
we had an exhibit last year called the energy revolution and i gave i was the curator and gave about 40 talks and what i realized in talking face to face to people when coming out of covid one we were hungry to talk and two most of those people that showed up under the surface felt that we had already failed at climate that it was too right. late and they were defeated and whatever so at the climate action museum we greet people at the front door with a simple sort of four button survey how do you feel like society's doing on climate? Uh, you know, how, how's your, how's your, what's your emotion about it? And so the options are engaged, optimistic, pessimistic, and defeated. And so we take people's temperature on the way in and on the way out. And we're okay. seeing some initial, uh, you know, this is not statistically significant anything. So I just, I would label this anecdotal, but okay. people come in and the process of going through the museum leave some of them seem to be slightly leave a little more less defeated sort of will go from defeated to pessimistic or you know uh whatever optimistic to engage so they're moving up one position there's no one has come in defeated and leaves energized that has not happened so so but the idea of creating a an experience an in-person often docent-led experience that could cause people's emotions to go from why bother because we've already lost to there's something here I can do. And so our sole focus is on things you have agency over. So we have a big, mm -hmm. the last wall is a big wall that says, if you're president, goodness, we have a long list of things we'd like you to do. Governor, <laughs> uh, ra rather a long list that down, you know, homeowner, uh, car owner, uh, business owner, all these kinds of things, architect, uh, you know, policy person, whatever, down to kid. So our thesis is everybody has agency. It's never even, um, but we honor you with the recognition that you have at least, if you're a kid, you can complain to your parents about they're not doing it right, right? And they will do something to shut you up. So, so like kids have agency, you know, the, yeah. And so this is in some ways also our response to a crying need to address environmental justice that, you know, uh, the harm is, disproportionately focused and the benefits are, are, you know, unevenly available, all those kinds of things. So, but one thing we all do have is agency. And so we celebrate each person's agency and try and get them to connect with the things that they can tangibly do. I mean, just about everything you're saying here just resonates massively with me personally and our investment thesis at a very personal level. Cool. I am someone who quit smoking uh, for a very long time being a smoker, which by the way, makes me very unusual in the VC business. And I quit when I got to California and around me, the idea of smoking was anathema, mm -hmm. you know, the, in a way that is not true for many other parts of the United States. Mm -hmm. So this, this idea that, you know, when you were saying, if your friends quit, you quit, you know, if everyone around you is not doing it or is doing something else, it, it adds up. We're going to motor along here and I'm going to pick and choose from our remaining questions. Since you published the book, any surprises, change happening faster or slower than you expected in certain things? Thanks for asking. So I would say slower. So, you know, um, authors, we delude ourselves into thinking, if I just choose the right words and make it quite appealing on the page and choose a nice color palette, etc., oh, people will just grab this and pick it up. And so, no, it is not that way. And, uh, you know, honestly, this, the, some of the thesis and our theory of change is a little counterintuitive. Uh, it takes some convincing of people. And so it is not, it's not a set of ideas that passively 
advance through Brownian motion. They, they take active right. engagement and discussion and debate, honestly. So, so um, which is, you know, in the back of my mind, one of the reasons to change the format for this engagement to an in-person place, the Climate Action Museum, where a docent, a live docent is leading you through it, challenging you to think differently. Um, you know, there's no email that will move anyone. So, so right. uh, I mean, that's the other thing is just the, the fallacy that social media or virtual things, I, in my opinion, almost make any difference at all. And so um, there's a New York Climate Museum that took a very different stance and it's, um, you know, was focusing on directing people to do things like write your bank or plan to post on social media. These were the kind of aggressive climate actions that the New York Climate Museum was advocating for, to which I say, like, you don't have any agency over, but, you know, I bank at Bank of America. I'm going to call them. What am I going to say? And what are they going to do? Hi, I have an account, this much money, and I'm really mad at you for this or that, right? So, and and if you took your, if you took their prompt and devoted the scarce time you're going to give in your life to climate action, and that's what you did with your scarce time, why bother? Why bother? So we really focused on the very tangible things. If, you know, if you own a car, it's a gas car, please plan to swap it out or use it less. Or what about the walking and the biking? You know, those kinds of things. So very specific things and and we're looking for those things that give people joy and happiness independence of its climate benefit better be fun or people don't want to do it i cannot tell you how much you know i'm, I'm sounding like a stuck record you know all all of this mm -hmm. resonates with how we, we think about the world and yeah above all you know there's so much doom saying and you know people are getting paralyzed which is just a terrible outcome and individuals have more agency than they think oh, and yeah. so um, I'm going to move to our last question, sure. and it's about patterns, which you mentioned in mm -hmm. the book. For our audience, could you share a few of your favorites, and how do you see patterns working together? Yeah, the patterns in Sustainable Nation were written in a kind of um, omnipotent voice. So several of my favorites go uh, include um, guidance for architects, for example. My favorite... I, there's so many favorites. One I'll mention is, so I'm based in Chicago where many of the firms that design the world's tallest buildings practice. So the firms export, you know, Gensler, ASGG, SOM, all these firms design, you know, across the Mideast, across um, the world, you know, mega tall buildings. And so the pattern is design mega tall buildings, not so, and goes on to say, this is just a bad idea. And yet you all are consumed with a race to build taller and taller and taller, just stock. So that's one. Um, another one for the everyday architect is, um, you know, architects, many architects, I think, have clients who simply want a building and, and that wants it to be legal and need code and they can occupy it and do whatever profit-making enterprise they're going to do in it. So, but the power of firms and developers and architects and so on who voluntarily exceed the code, those projects pave the way for the code to get more rigorous over time. Because the question with every new code that wants to be tougher and you know tougher on energy is, are people able to do it? It's like, 
evidently there are people that are voluntarily doing it. So now we can require it. So, so that kind of voluntary exceedance is a really powerful accelerant. So another pattern is approach every project as though this will be a little nerdy, but passive house, which is the super insulation standard I mentioned a few minutes ago, approach every project as though passive house, uh, which is, will be the energy code in the future or in effect today. So essentially live in 2028 and, and act accordingly because their standards are better. Uh, and there's nothing, hold, there's nothing illegal about holding yourself to a higher standard. So that's another one. And maybe I'll just pick, pick a third one. That's, um, kind of from a different realm design. It, it reads design urban waters to delight the senses. So let me unpack that. So, you know, you think of a city and it rains and what are you thinking of? You want to get inside and you want to get out of the rain. Well, since the Romans, we have been very focused on capturing water, putting it in a pipe or a tunnel and conveying it away um, so that no standing water is there and you don't ever get wet. And so, um, you know, our cities are dreary places to be in when it's raining because there's no fun. You don't ever see the water. It falls on the roof. The downspouts are internal to the building. They go into underground pipes. It's like, I thought it was raining here. Where's, you know, where's all the falling water? So, so this is one that says whether you are using, you know, delight all the senses. So sound, hearing, even, you know, taste on your face, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, as a guiding principle, a pattern for making a living, lively, joyous city that you, when it rains, say, Hey, it's raining. Let's go outside. Like it's, it's awesome. You know, let's do that. I, there's, there's 68 others. So t- tell me when you want to start there are a couple on burning man that are kind of fun too. hold. One of them is hold an annual neighborhood event based on the 10 principles of burning man. So, um, you know, and I think uh, here's, you asked about community a while ago where I think sort of the climate action has a kind of nerd science policy business sense and probably your tech VC, you know, some of your, uh, investors and clients are about offering products into a marketplace to move things forward. There's a sort of spiritual, emotional community side that I think is underrepresented. And so I think, you know, I, I believe in both. you got to do both. Um, and the patterns are fine. Those are some great examples, Doug. The dream is that more architects and planners incorporate these ideas in their design. To find out more about Doug's work and sustainable design, you can find him on farside.com. That's F-A-R-R-S-I-D-E.com. Doug, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak sure. with me today, and I know our listeners will have really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.